This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, September 29th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, yesterday, I said the Trump tax plan was barely a plan. Today, I want to discuss the reasons why it might not actually become a plan. But first, a couple of words about words. Now, yesterday, I talked about the pitfalls of calling a proposal, any proposal, reform. It imbues the idea with a virtue that the idea might not deserve. Today, let's look at nonpartisan. You'll be hearing a lot about the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center or other nonpartisan entities that might rate the tax proposal. Here's what nonpartisan means in this context, the IRS context, that the entity they're talking about does not endorse specific political candidates. To get funding as a nonprofit, this is what they have to do. They could be as ideological as the Trump tax cut is illogical and still be called nonpartisan. The Heritage Foundation, you know them, very right wing, nonpartisan. The ACLU, quite left wing, nonpartisan. The NRA, nonpartisan. It doesn't mean that the Tax Policy Center, which is out with a scoring of the plan, the quote unquote plan, is horribly biased or inaccurate. But what this means is that the Tax Policy Center, which is one of the first groups to score the tax proposal, is center-left. It's not horribly biased. It doesn't seem to be inaccurate historically, but that's where they're coming from. If the Tax Policy Center were a senator, it'd have a D after its name, or else it would be from Maine and really insist that it needs to read the full bill before it says if it opposes it. I'd say the Tax Policy Center's numbers are good, but let's just drop the technically accurate but not actually helpful label nonpartisan. All right, so what does the Tax Policy Center say? It says that the vast majority of the tax savings under the Trump plan will go to the very wealthy. Well, guess what? You'd be very hard-pressed to come up with a tax cut where it wasn't true that in terms of absolute dollars saved, the very wealthy wouldn't be saving the most. Guess why? They have the most to begin with. You pass a tax cut, they'll be saving the most. So maybe you'll hear about this tax plan that the middle quintile stands to save 660 bucks a year. That's what the tax policy center came out with. And you're thinking, oh, you know, if you're right there in the middle, who wouldn't want the 660? But then you hear that the top 1% is going to save $129,000 and the top 0.1% will save $700,000. Ah! But it's really hard to create tax cuts where something like this, not to this extreme, but something like this doesn't happen. The more money you make, the more money you save with a tax cut. The middle quintile does not have $700,000 to save in taxes that it doesn't have to pay because if they had $700,000, they wouldn't be in the middle quintile. 
But the dollar figure, that's the part that drives it home. What's really going on and what's causing the dollar figure is the percentage. And under this plan, according to the Tax Policy Center, the top 1% is getting a tax cut of 6.8%. By contrast, a payer between the 80th and 90th percentile will save 0.6%. The effective percentages are what makes this a tax cut for the rich. Most tax cuts are going to be for the rich. They could be more so or less so. This one is certainly more so. But will it be a tax cut for the rich or a tax cut for anyone? Will it pass? What's the it? We still don't know a lot of the details. But here's what indicates some tax cut is going to pass. That the Republicans control the White House, the Senate, and the House. And cutting taxes is to the Republican DNA what crappy gold finishes are to a blueprint of a Trump property. So arguing for the Trump administration achieving something on taxes is that everyone in control wants to achieve something on taxes. But arguing against the Trump administration achieving something on taxes is the Trump administration. Now, we criticize the Trump administration for a lot of things. We do. Have you heard that? We also have a sister podcast, Trumpcast. They're kind of critical of the old guy, too. Anyway, we ding them for corruption and crassness and ignorance and syntax and his sense of fashion, his sense of humor, and his sense of fairness. But those aren't the qualities that have damned him, at least in this life. Also, he's willing to engage in race baiting and he's sexist. These are all ugly traits, but they're not the traits that have been getting in the way of his achievements. What has hurt this administration, what has prevented it from doing anything on the issues that they say they care about are three things. Inattention to detail, plainly showing no concern for the most vulnerable in society, and not having, strictly speaking, not having a close adherence to the truth. In other words, they're cruel, sloppy liars. Now, if you're a Trump critic, you might take satisfaction that I have thrown out three punchy insults, cruel, sloppy liars. But it's much more than that. That is the formula that has proven to be Donald Trump and his administration's undoing so far. They leave all the details to outsiders. They don't often even know the details. And that turns them into passive players who can urge or cajole or rage against. They're really good at that. But they can't command the situation. Donald Trump is more of a cheerleader than a quarterback. Donald Trump's cruelty to immigrant families with the travel ban or to patients who would lose coverage, that has all hurt him in the past. He has eroded any sense that he cares about vulnerable people. And he thinks that he could engage in rage and that his base won't care, or that maybe his base hates these vulnerable people to begin with. But you know, not every Republican thinks that. Republicans, the individual senators and congressmen, they often think their bases will care. Or maybe they actually care. Like, They have a conscience and they don't want to hurt the most vulnerable. And finally, the lies. Wantonly trying to win a news cycle with an untruth might work for that news cycle. But then when you trot out the Mnuchin rule. Any reductions we have in upper income taxes will be offset by less deductions so that there will be no tax, absolute tax cut for the upper class. There will be a big tax cut for the middle class, but any tax cuts we have for the upper class will be offset by less deductions uh, that pay for it. Well, that statement is going to come back to haunt you. Like the Jimmy Kimmel rule or the I won't cut Medicaid promise. Cruel, sloppy liars. 
And that could get in the way of an agenda item they and their party got in the game for in the first place. On the show today, it's an Antan twig. We settle old debts, answer comments, defend the indefensible. But first, have you looked around lately and noticed something is a little off about this country? Many of us, possibly most of us, are batshit crazy. We always knew this about lots of our fellow citizens, that they're out to lunch. But the sheer number of Americans who are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs is kind of humbling. Kurt Anderson puts it a bit more eloquently, and he is here to talk about his new book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. America, what a country, to quote Yaakov Shmirnov. All right, he was a new immigrant. He had the zeal of the converted. Here's the real deal with America. America went haywire. That's the subtitle of Fantasyland, a 500-year history of America by Kurt Anderson. Two things to note about the phrase went haywire. On the book, the word haywire is in a weird, crazy font, just to get you in the mind of what Kurt is talking about. But also, the went, the went... I think we started off and have always been haywire. Isn't that correct, Kurt? Uh, we certainly had the seeds of haywire-ness from the very, very get-go, which is why it's a 500-year history. Yeah. How we started was because someone in England was haywire. Well, someone in England were both haywire and saw an opportunity to make some money by starting a, some colonies. So the Puritans were, just the word would uh, connote Puritan, but also they radically broke from society. They were outcasts. They came here. We're, we're started by not Jamestown, but the England, the uh, New Boston England colonies. Folks, yeah. yeah. We're, well, we're well, well, the Puritans were the most zealous Protestants in England. Then the, the separating Puritans, freakier still, more zealous still. And then the, the separating Puritans who had to get out of England were our people. Uh, so was it just the, a cycle that you had to one up the guys who came before you? Why does this happen? Well, that's a that's a very good question because yes, maybe in all religion, but certainly in the religion I now have spent a lot of time looking at, which is American Protestantism. Yes, is it a certain sect or brand or strain of Christianity that is most of the haywireness that you document? I would say it's several, and that's and 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 churches in the last fifty years since my big bang of haywireness started in the 60s, call themselves non-denominational churches. So it's very hard to say it's this, but let's look at a few practices. Let's look at, say, speaking in tongues, which when I was a little boy was a thing really the freaks did. And I and I was born in Nebraska. I grew up in Nebraska. So, you know, you had to be pretty freaky to be considered freakish uh, in a religious sense. So Speaking in tongues, Jesus is really any second going to come back and there's going to be the final Armageddon and war between Satan and Jesus. Not only are you speaking to God, but he's speaking back to you. These kinds of beliefs and practices, faith healing, are what I am regarding as sort of 
beyond the pale of extreme and aren't part of practice and belief in the rest of Christendom in the civilized world. And so when we talk about speaking tongues, there are the people who do it and endorse it. But also you talk about how even our top religious figures, our Billy Grahams, will not say that there's anything wrong about it. Well, they they used to never mention it. That was a schism between most Protestants and Pentecostals for, for years and years. And then in the uh, as we all entered crazy town, Billy Graham stopped criticizing it and began saying, no, this is fine. The the Southern Baptists, who are still kind of holdouts and old school, like we don't really, we really don't believe in speaking in tongues. But they decided, if you're going to a foreign country as a missionary, go ahead, speak in tongues. Right. It doesn't matter when you're there. Whenever I hear a person who doesn't particularly believe in a religion or doesn't subscribe to the tenets of a religion describing that religion, you can always make even mainstream Protestantism seem wackadoo. You can make, mm. well, I was raised Roman Catholic. Yeah. And if you told me, mm. you know, they believe that a little bit of cannibalism takes place during the transubstantiation of the Eucharist, I would say that's a little crazy. But in terms of the- but that's what you guys believe. <laughs> right, that's true. But it's not what you're talking about no. in American haywireness. No. So the point isn't that you're pointing to one or two beliefs that technically, yeah, these people would say doctrine uh, the- compels me. But these are the way people live by either speaking in tongues or fighting the Sur- forces Sur- of demonic possession Correct. all the time. Correct. I, I don't bring up the idea or debate the idea of whether Jesus was the son of God and was resurrected 2,000 years ago. Maybe so. I don't know. I got no way of saying but yes, it's exactly as you say. It's it's how you live now and how you think the world works now and going into restaurants and sniffing around for demons or shaking your friends so that and speaking to them so that the demons leave them or faith healing or all those things. Yeah, these aren't debatable ideas about what happened in the past or even how humans in the earth were created. This this is belief and practice here today and the world is about to end. The question is just is it 2050? Is it 2040? Is it 2030? Right. And the mainline denominations, as you document, have shifted from defining themselves in opposition to these crazy beliefs to countenancing them because I think to a large degree, they're businesses and they see that a lot of customers are drawn to that. Why uh, piss off the customer base? Well, but but I, I find the mainline denominations, which, by the way, weren't called mainline until the 60s when right. the the other ones began well, arising. Well, it's just why you don't have to name the thing an acoustic guitar before <laughs> the, there's an electric guitar. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there yes, there are charismatic believing Methodists who believe in faith healing. But the United Methodist Church, Episcopal Church, the, the mainline denominations, as they lose parishioners day after day and year after year, are pretty much holding to their reasonable, mm-hmm. the way Protestantism was when I was a kid uh, line. Uh, so they, they, unlike a lot of establishment characters and institutions, didn't really give it up. It was taken from them. Whereas I argue, for instance, that a lot of the academy, they gave it up. They, they stopped saying, oh, no, that's BS. Yeah. We're not going to count it. There's that. such a thing as truth. That's not a very popular opinion in the academy. No. And, and of course, uh, and, and there shouldn't be because, of course, all science, hard science even, is provisional truth. And, and we'll allow new facts to make us revise our version of reality. But this idea that magic is just as good as the scientific method, that was a new thing. Right. Okay. So I want to talk about that because the excessively religious Christians come in for it, as do the people who believe in uh, past lives and chakras and also the academy. The 
the people that you write about who are affiliated with, say, the University of Arizona, who, what's his name? Gary Schwartz. Gary Schwartz. Tell me a little bit about him and then I have a follow-up. <clears throat> well, he is a guy who, and I focused on him because he has this, these credentials, a great CV, Yale, Harvard, the whole business, who at a certain point in midlife decided uh, he believed in communication with the dead and all kinds of empirically <laughs> unprovable things that are exciting and magical and supernatural. And, and coincidences mean something. And coincidences mean something. He's published papers in this new official American Psychology Association journal about this kind of stuff that, oh, I, I saw giraffe and Paris 12 times in the last three weeks. God is talking to me. That literally is one of his papers published in a peer-reviewed How journal. could it be peer-reviewed? Do I not understand peer-review? Uh, you, you just, Are his peers you, you pa- find the right giraffes? You got to find the right peers. <laughs> oh, my God. So my question, though, is did the University of Arizona, which is a legit school. It is. It's the not, main campus. It's not Phoenix yeah, University. Yeah. Oh. Well, they wanted him they to did. perpetuate these ideas right. under their auspices. He left... Yale and moved to University of Arizona and got tenure there once it was clear his paradigm, this non-materialist, meaning essentially unscientific paradigm. And of course, he's a professor, among other things, of surgery there. This is a guy who doesn't have a medical degree or any hard science degree. It's interesting. My my British publisher, was the lawyer there, was just calling me or writing me and saying, we should perhaps make clear that Professor Schwartz, Schwartz does not practice surgery. And I said, okay, I, I don't know that he doesn't, but I assume you're right. And we, we'll make clear of that because, of course, in England, they have uh, – Yeah, if you get it wrong, it's on – Riskier liable. Yes, Professor yeah. Schwartz might go venue shopping in England. If the giraffe, if the Parisian giraffe, tell him to. <laughs> um, I have long thought that the kind of Christian and right-wing wackadoodles have an impact on my life in terms of national politics. But the left-wing wackadoodles in the day today, they're the anti-vaxxers who live in my Brooklyn neighborhood. They're the alternative therapy people. And yet I somehow tend to discount them. I don't know if it's because they're left-wing and they don't want to take away abortion rights. But which do you think is the more pernicious influence? Well, the right, the people on the right who, who are bringing their embrace of the untrue into the public policy realm are, are more pernicious because more of them believe untrue things and they have more power and those untrue beliefs have more power, like in denying climate science. But I know what you mean as a fellow Brooklynite, who, some of whose lefty friends believe in like not vaccinating their children, but it's pernicious in a different way because we're on the same side in some sense and you really can't be selectively uh, science denying in that way. You can't say, oh, but 88% of scientists agree that the climate change... And, but And then suddenly say, but I'm not going to vaccinate my children or GMOs are going to kill you. You can't have it both ways. And because I feel more like those people, it sometimes angers me more, especially in the case of anti-vax, where that does affect other people and makes other yeah. people sick, has killed yeah. other people. And there's a lower threshold for them hurting the society because of how herd immunity works. If 12% of the people want to take away your your right to an abortion, it doesn't it won't get effectuated. If 5% of a herd doesn't vaccinate, the whole herd is now yeah. uh, susceptible to the disease. Yes, even though it kind of freaks me out to think of human beings as herd herds, but yes, exactly <laughs> right. And I tried to avoid the both sides do it yeah. problem. 
both sides do do it, all of this stuff, but it is larger on the right for a whole set of uh, historical and maybe psychological reasons. Well, one of the reasons, as you point out, is that on the right, it's largely influenced by Christianity. Christianity has such a strong tradition in this country and it's uh, metastasized itself in different ways that it has elsewhere. And once you believe in one of these or maybe two of these untruthful ways of seeing the world, then you're opening the door to a whole bunch of other untruthful things. Hello, Donald Trump. No, it is, it is, I mean, extreme Christianity. And again, I want to make clear, I mean, I love... The, your your former church, or perhaps your current church, the Roman Catholic Church, because of its its top down, mainline keeping the hierarchy in place, keeping the crazy tendrils from growing out of yeah, control. It's conservative in the true sense. It, it, exactly. I'm not anti Christian. I find, to use your phrase, the wackadoo Christians who are have found their place in the modern Republican Party problematic because, as you say, that is a gateway set of beliefs to. Deciding you can believe whatever you want about anything, about Israel, about climate change, about whatever. And that's problematic because in this country, when you say, oh, that's a matter of deep personal faith, you're not supposed to talk about it any further. It's Mm -hmm. off the table. So here I was in the last election, and it does not surprise me that a large percentage of people have – ideas that are far different from mine, ideas that I would just say are based on untruths. And that number, there's a baseline number that's probably in the 30s. And then you layer onto it. I know some people will always vote Republican. There are some people who rationally voted Republicans, like if they're millionaires or something. And there are people who hate Hillary Clinton. And my analysis was you add it all up, it's still, I don't know, 5% fewer than what Hillary Clinton's going to get in terms of the vote. And therefore, we're fine. Hey, I live in a rich tapestry of a nation, but we're fine. But when that tissue-thin difference between the sane and the insane, you're you're a little wrong about, or it's uh, the difference is uh, miscalculated uh, from one side to the other, the entire world changes. And I wonder, I mean, you write about this in terms of the Thomas Jefferson quote, which is, if it doesn't break my leg or pick my pocket, I could live with it. But have we been right all along to say that, hey, it's fine if, you know, some large percentage of Americans believe untruthful things as long as it doesn't show up in, say, a national election? I would have said definitely, unreservedly, yes, even 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 Uh, years ago. I'm not sure now, partly because we live in the digital age where the untrue has such astoundingly real-looking, legit-looking websites and and existence digitally, virtually. So uh, what are you going to do? You can't make believing preposterous things illegal. You can't – I mean, free speech is not only – in the Constitution and part of the American way, but how, how, practically, how could you do it? So, what what are you going to do? But I think we're we're we are now reckoning with the excesses of democracy and liberty. Yeah. Do you think it's all reached a crescendo? I mean, the title of the book, as I said in the intro, is how it went haywire. Yeah. Of course, it's always been haywire. During our greatest moments, the haywire aspects were there. It's not as if we won World War II at a time when insanity disappeared. It was still there. Everything that America achieved, and its achievements are notable and many, is during set against the backdrop of craziness. So this is kind of the where do we go from here? Well, or has I, it reached some sort of crescendo I, from which the center will not hold? That, that's that's my worry. 
I mean, yes, we've always had all of the forms of craziness than we have now. I don't know about always, but for a long time in various ways. even for, Or versions of them. Yeah, yeah, even like, oh, we think the televangelist. That's a modern thing. That yeah. just happened in the 60s and 80s. No, guys in the 1700s were like discovered show business as they were preaching around the country. Right, or if you look at uh, what Breitbart is selling now, uh, reading, I mean, I barely remembered the book, but when you wrote the uh, wrote about the book, None Dare Call It Treason, a very nationalistic, conspiratorial Breitbart view of the world, which sold a million copies. Yes. And everyone believed that the state, de- not everyone, but millions of people believe the right. State Department was stocked with traitors. Right. <laughs> Yet, the Republican Party, for instance, kept all of that, that fringe conspiracist delusion out of platforms, out of the mainstream. It was the elites were in control. So, yeah, it's always been there. I worry that for a variety of reasons, we may not be able to roll it back. Chief among them, I guess, is the digital age where the alternate realities that people can create for themselves or or have created for them are all-encompassing 24-7. And so uh, you never get out of it. I mean, uh, my dad, who was not a nut in any way, still was a Goldwater conservative. He watched the NBC Nightly News and read Time Magazine, and got his copy of the National Review every two weeks. Not for five hours a day or 16 hours a day that you get when you're watching Fox News or listening to... And by the way, the National Review, which sidelined sidelined the Birch Society. Exactly. That's the way conservative... Should be. Conservatism should be. The two two sideline the the nuts and yeah. the wing nuts and the radicals in that case. And, and that's that's my problem with I, I won't call the, the people who are called conservatives today conservative. Some, some of them are. Some I mean are. real true conservatives, but what's called oh the, the 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 very conservative part of the house. No, 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 no. They're not conservative. They are not conservative. They are the opposite of a conservative. Yeah, the Freedom Caucus are radicals. Yes. And the alt right is not right and definitely <laughs> alt. Yeah. Yeah. Kurt Anderson is the author of Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-year history, and about a 500-page book, so it's about a one-to-one correlation. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak 
that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. It's an Antan twig, which, as you know, stands for a three-week period. At least that's the origin of the word. Etymologies are interesting. Words change. So Antan twig did originally technically mean a three-week period, like a fortnight is a two-week period. You know, it was mentioned by Chaucer in his early works. Not Geoffrey Chaucer, Wally Chaucer. But anyway, it's kind of morphed. It's been more than three weeks since I engaged in this, an Antan twig where I go over comments, where I answer questions, where I issue corrections. But that's fine. It's been actually well over a month. Or if I want to be really, really apologetic, well, over a month. Okay. The other day in my segment on flags, apparently I pronounced Montpellier wrong. I, you see, when you, try to, when you try to lay into it with a Montpellier, they turn out it's Montpellier. But then when you say Chile is the name of the country, it turns out it's just a more successful competitor to Bennigan's. Anyway, I mentioned that the flag of Angola had an AK-47 on it. Wrong, wrong weapon, a machete. And a few people pointed this out, but none so eloquently as Simon Banderab, who has a direct association with Mozambique's flag. A heroic one, in fact. See, he was playing Mozambique in a model United Nations. And as was the tradition at his school, they would order Mozambique clothing. So this would mean that an AK-47 would be on a school-affiliated shirt. Uh, Whoever was in charge of going through with the purchase declined. They didn't think that weaponry would be appropriate for a school-affiliated shirt. And so when the model United Nations got to their actual conference, uh, I'll quote him here, after we arrived at our model United Nations conference, jet-lagged and disoriented, I pulled a Mozambican flag from my jacket to rally the troops. So heroic, a Mozambican flag. And I'm sure they also won that particular debate on desalinization in the subcommittee on the environment. Mark Wallander writes in to me to note that the poplar tree incident in North Korea did not include Americans who were shot when trying to trim a poplar tree. These Americans were hacked to death with axes. He is correct. I was incorrect. In fact, the more popular name of the poplar tree incident was the axe murder incident. <laughs> I guess on one, poplar tree is pretty neutral. On uh, one end, you have axe murder incident. That is actually what it's in, entered in Wikipedia as, the axe murder incident. I think maybe incident downplays the axe murder part of that phrase. <laughs> Once you say axe murder, can you really qualify it with incident? Certain words, snafu, kerfuffle, the axe murder misunderstanding seem not to go. Of course, there is another less popular name for the poplar tree incident, and it was called the tree trimming incident. Oh, really? What happened in the tree trimming incident? Well, not only did the tree get trimmed, but uh, actually we almost uh, reinvigorated a world war. Okay. The other day in this program, I talked about how Donald Trump was laying into Kim Jong-un with the old rocket man thing. And I surmised, if only throughout U.S. history, we had called our rivals by belittling nicknames. I'm sure Kaiser Wilhelm would go away if we pointed out that antenna thing on top of his head. Now, Hamad Sheikh wrote in to say, Mike, 
FM radio was invented in 1933. World War I ended in 1918. I don't think insulting Kaiser antenna head would have prevented the war. Just saying. That is true, but I have looked it up and it turns out insects actually predate FM radio antenna. In fact, that's where we get the name antenna. We didn't retro name those little feeler things sticking out of insects after we got the radio. But thank you for your comment, Hamed Sheik. And finally, I was talking about tons, uh, the English way to spell ton, T-O-N-N-E. And Gail Paris, writing not from Paris, but apparently England, said actually they're different things. Ton is pronounced ton, but when it's spelled ton with T-O-N-N-E, it's different from ton, T-O-N, T-O-N is imperial, T-O-N-N-E is metric. And so here's the huge difference, you ready? One ton, T-O-N-N-E, is 0.984 of a ton. I could see why we never adopted the metric system. So the metric ton is a unit of measurement, and it's 0.984 of a ton. This is like as if a kilometer were not called a kilometer, were the length of a kilometer, but were called a mile but it was spelled M-Y-L-E. Thank you, metric system. You're just trying to be difficult. But Gail, you are correct, and I credit you. But yet, Gail, though correct you are, you didn't make me feel good about myself. And when I think about what qualifies as a lobster, it is, I, I will admit that there's that bit of ego stroking. I usually won't give a lobster, which is the award that we give to the listener of the Antan Twig, I usually won't give it out to someone who corrected me. Yes, that's how thin-skinned I am. So I will now nominate a sub-lobstar and a lobstar. The runner-up for Lobstar of the Antan Twig wrote in after in my credits I was riffing on the Fatberg and I referred to a Ratatatberg and an Anwar Sadatberg and I was trying to work my way up to a Wombatberg. But David Leibowitz says, I can't believe you didn't go for the Yasser Arafatberg. Great show as always. Now there is a question. Yasser Arafatberg does not actually rhyme with Fatberg, but it's just so perfect. And I could see it with a little headscarf on it, you know? It would be pretty good. That's why you're the runner-up. Great suggestion. But the winner of the Lobstar of this Antan Twig, Skylar Chapman reached out to me on Facebook. I'm at at Pesca, me, P-E-S-C-A-M-I. And he wrote about how he introduced the word frenemy to his seven-year-old. And the seven-year-old said, you heard that on the gist, right? And that is why the lobster of this Antan twig goes to Skylar Chapman's seven-year-old. Skylar, I don't know what your seven-year-old's name is. I was talking about it with Mary. A guy named Skylar who's, I think, in his 30s, already has a cool name. Does he one-up the coolsmanship? Does he go with uh, Zeus Chapman? I think not. I think he uh, retreats, so that's why I'm giving it to seven-year-old Herbert Chapman. Herbie Chapman, you are the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show, but it's not it for the live show. There is a live show Tuesday, November 28th. It's at the uh, Hamilton Theater. I'm seeing the time is at 7.30. Yesterday I announced it was 7. That's fine. You can get there for early seats. Somewhere in the 7 o'clock hour, the first half of the 7 o'clock hour on November 28th at the Hamilton Theater in D.C. We're calling it Pesca on the Potomac. Here's who will be there. Just regular Chris Malamphy, Alexandra Petri of the Washington Post, Perry Bacon Jr. of 538, actress Holly Twyford, and Benjamin Wittest 
from Lawfare. And we will we will discuss some inch with Benjamin Wittes. So come join me, Pesca on the Potomac, on November 28th. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who is not a cruel, sloppy liar. Well, he is, but never all in the same sentence. Except that time, he called Luke Longley the shortest cricket player ever to be born in Austria. Mary Wilson, gist producer, also not a cruel, sloppy liar. But when she was young, she wanted to represent beagles and dachshunds in custody cases as a cool puppy lawyer. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He is a kind, attentive truth teller. Also, Please note my direct supervisor, The Gist. I like my tax cuts like I like my steak. Between medium and rare. Join me as we roast some top round steak and talk national finances at my barbecue and tax policy hoedown. Tax cuts for the middle class and meat cuts from the cattle's ass. I'm Mike Pesca and I'm wearing a big old hat in this imaginary ad. Um, Peru, that Peru, do Peru. And thanks for listening.